Welcome to 80s Music Exposed, the podcast in which we review all the best albums of the 80s, one month at a time. We will break them down, give you the skinny, and duke it out over whether you should or should not dig these back out again. If you are ready for an 80s music deep dive, from Public Enemy to Wham, Eno to XTC, Madonna, Hair Metal, Reggae, and all points in between. Then crank the boombox, turn the Walkman up to 10, and let's go. Now, from the kitchen, Chris and Henry. All right, Henry, welcome back. It's been a little while, right? I know. We took a big break. Yeah, that happens when uh, it's a free show and we're not getting paid. That's right. Summer break. We had to do do some stuff. Put me on the fucking payroll. And we'll do one. And we'll bang I'll, one out once a I'll week. I'll bang one out. <laughs> but yeah. we're going to keep going with this one because we really like it. And we apologize for the inter- intermittentness of the releases. But Is the expectation that we would have like a cadence going? And that well, be, or people forget about it? I know how I am when I listen to podcasts. I like to see one at a regular time but now I, I use Stitcher and it always alerts me when there's a new one from one of my favorites so hopefully and then if you you know how you look in and they haven't updated yes and it's like 30 days or something crazy however long it's been but for it's, us but it's good because I'm hoping people will put us in their favorites and they'll know when this episode goes up but yeah we've got some listeners and we appreciate it yeah and so this is the second half of May like we said last time if you remember uh, May was so power packed uh, it had 10 records uh, in it so we split it into two episodes and just to refresh, Henry, tell them how we, you always do this part, so tell them how we uh, pick the record. Maybe I'll say it right. So, basically, what we I'm do. I'm going to let you keep doing it until you say it right. How about that? And you're going to tell me, cut, do it again, <laughs> cut, do it again. <laughs> sure. <laughs> basically, what we do is we look at the most well-reviewed records from each month in the 80s. One month at a time in a right. And we look at we look at four different criteria. We look at the all music five star reviews. And for those of you who don't know, all music is a current website. It's like that, a, like an aggregator type thing. It's right? a cool website. I mean, it, it it's really neat that they do actually try to have something on every record that's yeah. ever been produced. Uh, Grammy nominees, right? Right. Selections from history that we love. You might see one of those today. Yeah. Um, so there might be a, a couple that Henry and I really love that didn't really they weren't. Five star records yeah, or whatever. You know. We're just really jacked to want to talk about. Yeah, but we want to talk about it. Sure. And we look at the Rolling Stone year end top twenty five. What what we don't do is we don't look at things uh, in at the retrospective stuff. Like this week, for example, Pitchfork's got like the top two hundred records from the eighties. Right. So they're looking at it from you know. So I, I guess you and I would probably call it a biased perspective. Sure, or right, even or, I think it's interesting because that that puts like a modern point of view on it because yeah. now it's it's seen through the eyes of I, I don't know I, I think about I think that's one of the cooler things we do because I've been looking at older movies too and I and I think a lot did I think that looked cool back then because of how old I was or because of the time period mm-hmm. so there's always a lens looking back on things and so this we're trying to look at what people then thought was cool or well, Rolling Stone thought was cool then. Yeah, and you know, I think what we're also going to look at it, I mean, we live in 2018. You have to look at it with some degree of um, of, of historical con- but I think one of the things we bring to this That's what I think what me and you are bringing is to the trying right? to bring some context. Yes, yes. As much as we have. So we're the ones so. that are kind of bringing the uh, 
the pitchfork snobbery of our own right here. <laughs> Is that it? Yeah. Like our own brand of pitchfork snobbery? Which, which pitchfork people would poo-poo because we're too old for pitchfork. But anyway, that's what we're going to do. And yeah. uh, Normally, we, we kind of bring some little factoids, too, to kind of refresh uh, the listener about what was going on that month. I didn't put any in this time, Henry, because last episode's factoids were so blockbuster for the month of May. Really? Anything else I looked at was kind of like, eh. So, yeah, the... T- the so the two monumental events that happened in May that were on May 21st, The Empire Strikes Back. Is Hell released. yeah, the best of all the Star Wars is. Even with all these new ones, but that's a whole another podcast, I'm sure. And then on May 26th, Pac-Man, the arcade game, was released. And that's I think you right. kind of felt like, what? That was a little... It just feels like it was, it was later than that. I think because Space Invaders had already been out for a little while, because Space yeah. Invaders was first. But yeah, Pac-Man came out on May 22nd. I couldn't really find anything to top those two things. So, Henry, what do you say if we just get right into the Yeah, record? let's just jump in it, man. Okay, so our, the first record that we're going to review is called McCartney 2 by Paul McCartney. And I try to stay away from playing hits if there are any, but I, I don't want to play it. I don't think you should play it. What do you want to play? Because I want to play I mean, it. I don't, let, me, let me see which one you picked. I picked Coming Up. Okay, th- that was a big hit. I think that's almost kind of like cheating, but... I, th- I think we have to play Coming Up, because I think that's how people are going to get in it. And I think that's... Like people who might not. You're going to find my review says that's the only thing worth listening to on this record, really. But here uh, it is. This is Coming it. Up by okay. McCartney. Okay. Okay, so that was uh, Coming Up by Paul McCartney off of McCartney 2, which the first thing interesting I want to say about this record, because I didn't find a lot to be that interesting about it, was that this was basically follow-up to a solo record from 10 years before. Yeah. So basically Wings was in between, Yeah. and this was going to be a Wings record, or he was demoing it for a Wings record, (laughs) and then... In some way, Wings were like, no, nah, this is not but come for us. On. I mean, wasn't Wings really a solo thing anyway? I mean, let's be honest. Wasn't like him and a bunch of other people? I mean, I think it was, but like I don't a, know. A, like a, a cast of characters that kept swapping out no, I don't for, think about, so. for about 10 years. No, I think he had a sidekick that was with him quite a bit, the guitar player guy, but I, I can't remember his name. I'm not a big Wings official. I did a little bit of digging on that, but and I, they... One of the reasons they broke up was because of those things. So let me let me say this first and foremost. Yeah. There are the idea for this record, his original idea, which was he listened to some cool David Bowie, um, Brian Eno type mm-hmm. stuff, which Brian Eno comes up a lot on our show. I don't know if you noticed that, Henry, but yeah. and he was trying to do his version of that kind of so he kind of disappeared into his own studio, yeah. played all the instruments, fell in love with weird keyboards, and a lot of these songs come from that. A for effort, Paul. I like that. I like where you're going. I like Paul trying to get weird. 
This sounds like what I always imagine John Lennon wanted to say about Paul McCartney but wouldn't say out loud, which is Paul is just not cool enough and artistic enough to get super weird. Or to pull it off. Like, he writes the best pop songs in the world, but he's not pulling off weird keyboard jams. And then here, the coup de grace for me, Henry, and I'll let you jam on this, is why didn't he just leave it with those? That would have been at least interesting. What are these two or three blues jams that are in there that sound like a fucking Wings cast it's, off it's, song? Right, right. It's spotty. So then, then all of a sudden and you're like, no is sense. he doing an art record or is he doing a blues record? What the fuck is going on on this record? I, I don't know. It's, so the, I, the, the, the narrative, right, for this thing is that Paul McCartney was trying to... Um, He'd gone to see people like John Cage and those kind of guys and was trying to expand his palette. Another narrative that I've invented in my head is that McCartney's always done this to some degree. Like, what I know of his career, which isn't a lot because some of it I'll ignore, is he has a tendency to sort of ape other other genres and wrestle his Paul McCartney as... Paul McCartney is. You wouldn't be saying that because this very week he came out with a song that's called "I Wanna Fuck You." Oh, really? Um, That sounds like it's on that Egypt Station record, right? And I haven't heard it yet. Produced by he got one of these guys to produce it that produces like Katy Perry and people like that. And by produce, they produce in the way that you imagine they produce for Katy Perry, which is it sounds Mm -hmm. like they wrote the actual song. Oh, really? Singing it? Is it? Is he do? Is it like that? Is it is it Paul McCartney wrestled into somebody else's format? Yeah, it sounds that way. And then the lyrics are very creepy for an eighty year old man to be singing about. Yeah. Hey, baby, why don't you want to do this? I thought we whatever. I want to fuck. You. He, he's entirely too sweet. Like this record, especially, he feels entirely too sweet for what he's trying to do. Right. And and he's so well defined in who he is. That it's really hard to accept what he's trying to do as, I don't know, would you call it, I don't know, far be it from me to talk smack about being artistically valid, right? But that's just how it felt. Well, then the next thing that bothered me about it was I went back and listened to it a second time because I didn't want to rip a Paul McCartney record as bad as I was yeah. wanting, wanting to rip it. And then, I did you, did you re-listen or did you pay attention to this song called One of These Days? I'm listening to it. I don't know if I blitzed through that one or not. And one of these days sounded to me like if he had let the Beatles do that song, if he'd have brought George and John mm-hmm. in, it would have been a decent Beatles song. So I got to give that an okay. Waterfalls. Okay, this song Waterfalls blows my mind. It sounds, the lyrics and the melody sound just like TLC's Waterfalls, which is one of my favorite songs in the 90s. Hmm. And then I go look up TLC's Waterfalls. They ended up giving him a writing credit because he mentioned how closely their song sounded to his. Oh, my goodness. I didn't know that. Which now means, I uh, now I'm like, well, Waterfalls is good then because he broke, I love TLC's Waterfalls. It. Right Now maybe I like this record. But, but. The, you have to put up, for all those kinds of things, you do have to put up with temporary secretary. Yeah, and what's that Which is that the other... most whiny, weird thing. And then didn't he have a weird jack? Yeah. It's got like this, eight, you know, faux Asian bit to it. And he calls it um, Frozen Jap. I mean, you could say Jap in 1980, but I mean, come on. You could call somebody a Jap and still be <laughs> Paul McCartney. 
Peace, in, peace in, love, hippie, Paul In May of 1980. Calling people. Hey, he's just a jab. I, I worked really hard for about three days trying to perfect my Paul McCartney impersonation, knowing that once I got on the mic, I would lose You'd my lose sack. It. Right. But so I, I, I rehearsed it. This is him, like, trying to justify what he was doing. And I went to the concerts in London because I had a pretty... Had a plenty of time on my hands. The kind of thing I would just go and see again, just to see what it was on about. Not, I see. I already said it wrong. Yeah. But I, I see. I think he plays off that stuff. Like, oh, it's no big deal, you know. It, but he's obviously trying to do this. I swear to God, it feels like a careerist move, even though it's not. Yeah, it's like a careerist move trying to be more less careerist. But less careerist was really hot right then. Yeah. So it's, yeah, as yes. we will see. Right. You know. Right. The, no, the, I, totally. I feel the same way. And, and you know, again, it wouldn't have been so awful if he hadn't just mixed in two songs that sounded like they could have been shitty Wings songs. And then throwaways like this Frozen Jap that he's just probably sitting on a keyboard going, ching chong, bing bong, ching. Yeah. Oh, that I sounds like... I liked it when he wasn't singing, to be honest with you. Those, yeah. those moments were good. Yeah. I and hate, then, I hate but, to even but, say it. But then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Coming Up is on there, which was a big part of our childhood. I mean, it was on the radio. Yeah, it was a big hit. Right. But all the surrounding stuff had, it, they don't connect the, most of the songs. No, the, or the, maybe it's two halves of one record. I don't know. And, it's, and, and so what surprises me the most, Henry, maybe I'm holding him to too high a standard here, is the person that kind of invented the rock concept record with uh, Sgt. Peppers mm-hmm. and then did. Abbey Road and the White Album, these glorious concept records where all the songs connect. Maybe John, maybe Paul did die, and this guy is a... Is like a pretender? Is a fucking... I've never liked <laughs> uh, Paul McCartney's solo stuff as a rule. I don't know, I, you know, with a rare exception. I might be able to... Yeah, I struggled even one. with coming up. I struggled with going, yeah. Hey Jude. He wrote Hey Jude. True. And this is not Hey Jude. But but the Beatles, but but Lennon wrote part of Hey Jude with him, right? I mean... But anyway, yeah. So, I don't know. I, I, I'm going to say my then review of it was I knew coming up and loved it as a kid. It was catchy, snappy tune. Now I would say if you cut out all the mismatchy shit and just made it this synth album, even maybe called it a weird demo mm-hmm. record... But, it might have been cool. But could you call it the most interesting Paul McCartney solo album? I just made this, and these are the raw demos, and I don't want to touch them. That could have been interesting, right? Yeah, but see, like, I've had more... T- we've had some time between May May Part 1 and May Part 2. So I've sat with these records, particularly this one, well, there's longer than the other ones. And so I, at first I was I was prepared to kill it. like, But then I started thinking... I was trying to put it in context. But but the context that I have are some of the other records that I'm listening to right well, now. Well, yeah, and, and the so, next record we're going to talk about is what I imagine Paul McCartney was trying to do. Right. And doing it so much better. So I'm going to give this one a thumbs down, Henry. I'm going to say don't even go back and bother with it. What what are your thoughts on it? You know, I go back to that idea. Remember when we, re- we reviewed um, the Ramones? Right. And some things are a, are a train wreck that you need to witness you know, or try to get, get your mind around. I love how you This, do that. to me, might be one of those things. Like, if you view it as this, like this absurd curiosity, then I think you should. And I'm excited to hear at the year end, like your year end top 20 might. Is it going to be like actually boners in it where you're like, 
Well, but this one was... you got to hear this yeah, yeah, shit. This is fucking weird. <laughs> I mean, I'm the guy that listens to, like, Jandek and shit like that. Right. So, I'm like, there are, re- there are reasons for listening to something beyond it just being pleasant to your ears. Well, let's go on to the next record, Henry, which I think... And I get the honors on this. Job. Okay, so the, the next record is uh, Peter Gabriel 3. People call it Melt. Right. Because the, the, the cover of it is... A uh, a treated Polaroid. Let's go ahead and play his, uh, the track. Um, the reason I'm playing this one is just because it's my favorite Peter Gabriel song yeah, of you, all time. You pick one, you hardly yeah, you hardly go wrong on this one. I just love it. So Biko. Okay, so, yeah, Henry, so the guy is so badass. He's so far in the woods after Genesis. He doesn't even name his first four records. They're just all called Peter Gabriel. Yeah. And so so people name them for him. So everyone calls this one Melt because it looks like his face is melting on the cover. And Biko was like his, his – there's two protest songs on this record. One is Biko. The other one is – I didn't write it down. Games Without Frontiers. Right. The the thing about Biko for me was, it was I guess for me as even a kid, it was the first protest song that was so powerfully in my wheelhouse of type music that I was kind of you know it felt like our time period, mm-hmm. and it had such a powerful feel to it. It actually made me go and look, like try to find out who was Biko, what right. the story was, and this is before you had a supercomputer in your pocket and you could just go. You know, I, I had to go ask people and, like, go to the library to find mm-hmm. out who Stephen Biko was. So, um, it really hit... That one hit home. Um, the rest of the record, and, and I... My first impression of it um, a long time ago was it was too removed for me to be able to... As a kid, I couldn't... So, you did hear it. Yeah, I, and like I said, I heard it because of Biko. And I guess it, it sounded too remote for me. Now, it sounds exactly like what I'm imagining Paul McCartney wanted to sound like. So Peter Gabriel had kind of discovered the Fairlight computer. Uh, His friend Kate Bush had Mm -hmm. kind of introduced him to it. His other friend um, Phil Collins had helped introduce him to the gated drum sound and no cymbals. Uh That was a big part of this record. Peter Gabriel wanted his drummers not to use cymbals. And he said the reason was he liked to put people in boxes and see what they would do. And you know he's right about that. Right, it makes, makes you more creative. It really does. And so there's there's really no symbols on this record, which is kind of cool. The, the but for me, this the, this one is the first one of his solo records that starts to sound like what we're going to hear 
developing into the Peter Gabriel sound. Mm-hmm. It's like he's starting to hone in on that keyboard, kind of that 80s. He's starting to bring in that African kind of feel, world right. music kind of feel. But the um, the first song, Intruder, sets the tone for the whole record. Yes. Um, it's it's adventurous. It, it's got a lot of guitar, like, um, God, what would you call it? Just dissonant. Yeah, I listen to it. It sounds really good on a big stereo system in your car since it's been remastered. You know, it kind of reminded me, too, listening back to Intruder. I don't know if you remember that Michael Mann movie called Manhunter. Yeah, yeah. It reminded me a lot of Manhunter um, because it had that feeling, that ominous, like, stalkery kind of thing going on. This record sits, uh, can sit beside an LCD record with no problem and others to, uh, others like it sure. today you can hear things in it that uh, it's almost exactly the state of mature indie music and another today. name that comes up a lot uh, if we probably put together a discography uh, that Henry and I both admire Steve Lillywhite produced this and his name comes up a lot with a lot of artists that we yeah that we love like Morrissey and Smith Smith's, well, I don't know if he did Smith's but I know that he comes up a lot. Yeah, of course, of course, we also have him to thank for Dave Matthews. But well, yeah, I didn't say he came up all the time with stuff. There's like something that. I, I would I will bring it up now only be, and because I know it's going to come up a little bit later. There's a song on here called "Start." Yes, that has a a distinctively '80s style saxophone. That was something about that sound that drew everybody in back then. Right. Not only not only Peter Gabriel, but other people on this list. Yeah, and I loved I love that sound. You it's, you have a problem it, with that sound, um, I think. Yeah, yeah. But weirdly enough, I mean, because it's Peter Gabriel and because everything is great on this record, you sort of Well, it, I'll tell you something. You grow to embrace it, but it only shows up on that one song. Well, but I'll tell you, going back and deeply going through the David Bowie catalog after he passed. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that comes from him because he had a lot of saxophone because he was a saxophone player, a bad saxophone player. Oh, really? But, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, and on purpose. I mean, like not on purpose, but I mean, like, he was bad. He knew he was bad. Uh-huh. But um, a lot of people are emulating. I feel like that late 70s David Bowie saxophone sound is kind of where he's getting that from. Mm-hmm. But definitely you're right. It's kind of that 80s. That and that gated drum sound with no cymbals. Is yeah. Kind of, these are so like 80s hallmarks. Everybody, uh, not everybody, but what I read said that that was quite possibly the beginning of that was the limitation on the cymbal. Yeah, and he and he gives full credit to Phil Collins for coming over and helping with this record. Uh, I like I like that a lot of the myth is that Phil Collins like ran Peter Gabriel out of Genesis and that they hated each other. Which was the that furthest true, thing right? from the truth. The, the little keyboard guy turns out to be the kind of the dick of Genesis and runs Peter Gabriel out. But he and Phil Collins are big friends. And so Phil Collins helped him a lot with this record. They came up with that drum sound. Really, Phil Collins came up with it and introduced it to Peter Gabriel. But then this, he actually helped Peter Gabriel do that before he put his solo record out, which had the definitive gated drum sound song, the. Mm-hmm. Dun, 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 oh, dun. In the air tonight. Is in the air one? tonight. Yeah. Is that right. Yeah. So, I just I've always found that mythology kind of neat because everyone's like, oh yeah, uh, Peter Gabriel's too cool for Genesis once Phil Collins joined. He was that's like, exactly what I thought till I started reading, and, and that's I realized oh, not that's the bullshit. case. <laughs> not the case at all. So, um, and, and another thing, I didn't realize this, but that the record cover was every bit 
in step with how he li- how Peter Gabriel likes to present himself, which is not necessarily in the most flattering way. My understanding is that in Genesis he used to dress in these crazy outfits all the time, and even after that uh, very like successful solo period, the the So album and Sledgehammer and all that. When you look at the records in the like twenty years since then. He's not afraid to make himself look bizarre or strange, like I guess, like David Bowie. Or I think something. he saw he he sees a, a lot of it as much as performance art as yeah. music, and a lot of the late period Peter Gabriel Genesis stuff, which I still think you poo poo, yeah, um, is doing a lot of the stuff that bands like Flaming Lips were doing now. He was he was wearing like mascot heads yeah. and stuff and that's what drove the keyboard guy crazy because he, it was just like he thought it was becoming the Peter Gabriel art show oh yeah and you know was forgetting about all the great um, keyboard work he was doing mm-hmm. so but I think you should go back and check some of that stuff out but yeah definitely like even like Henry the first kind of hit that we all really knew from MTV of Peter Gabriel Shock the Monkey yep I don't know if you remember the video for that it was almost yeah, like an yeah. art piece. It I was do. almost like didn't he have white like a whole all white all over his whole body? Yeah, and you're sitting there going, Is this a song or is this a little movie or what the fuck is this? As much as it was a song, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like and I think that that's kind of his thing. Why do I remember game, games without frontiers more than Biko? Um, it was a bigger hit because it? it had a MTV video. And okay. Biko didn't. Biko kind of became a hit later when the whole apartheid mid '80s right. Sun City um, thing happened, and then of course uh, there was a movie made about Biko, and they used it over the credits, and it was pretty amazing. But so uh, then I knew <laughs> what I wrote for this interview was then I knew this record was cool. Uh-huh. I wasn't cool enough to listen to it. I just knew it was cool. Yeah, hey, do you have that in your in your head? There's some records that you're like. That's a cool record. I can't. I'm not. I don't want to listen to it, but I, I know that's a cool record. Uh, yeah, this was one of those. This is one that I knew I was supposed to know. So yeah, like my and brother had it in the collection. I always wanted to listen to it, but I was like, I'm not. I don't. But right. So <laughs> like, like really good. Like I'm gonna listen to it again. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, what I wrote was then I knew it was cool. Now I know, I know it, is, it cool. is cool. Right. Okay. So I'm going to recommend this one. This is one. This is my first recommendation yeah. for the episode. Yeah, big ups on that. Okay, great. So we both like that one. So go back and check out what is ostensibly called "Melt" by Peter Gabriel. Uh, the next record is called "Roses in the Snow," and it's a totally different record than "Melt," and it's by Emmylou Harris. Another in our country. Yes. Series. Yeah, our country. I, I almost want to because I, we're such experts in country well, I wanna, music I, and whether I, it's I good or not. I kind of want to rankle at the word country for this one though, because once I got into it, I realized it's more of a blue bluegrass yep. record. But, yep. Yep. Um, this song is called uh, "Green Pastures." Oh, 
okay, Henry, the first thing I'm going to say is like my main experience with Emmylou Harris I know is with Graham Parsons. Oh, um, no, that's not what I see. And duetting with Graham Parsons and all the stuff that she did to help Graham Parsons be the Graham Parsons that we all love. So I gravitated on this record to all the duets that she did because I feel like her best work is when she's duetting with a guy. So her and Ricky Skaggs in the song you just heard duetted, and he duets with her a lot. And gosh, the whole record just made me miss Grandpa. <laughs> so that's that's my first uh, thing. And if you don't know who Grant Parsons is, uh, you really should check him out. He's kind of like the hipster yep. uh, rock and roll country dude. And, and when you find them, you're going to find the Bird's Sweethearts of the Rodeo, and then right. you, you will thank me. Right. And then after Sweethearts of the Rodeo, you're going to find Grievous Angel, which is um, Grant Parsons and Amy Lou Harris, which is the... Which is the shit. So my my touchstone. I got to tell you, I didn't know much about Amy Lou Harris until the '90s, when that whole Lilith Fair thing happened, and uh, she was sort of lumped in. That she had a that was during her career resurgence. Apparently, in the you know she fell out of favor with Nashville for a little while, and was embraced then by the likes of you know probably Liz Fair and some of the other um, female artists that came to the fore in the 90s and that uh that daniel lenoy record wrecking ball where she sings that neil young song and and maybe you can correct me on this she seems to have done a lot of covers like that i don't know is she that prolific a songwriter on her own i know this whole record we listened to was all traditionals and cover songs right? i think she's i think she's so prolific in that she does so many records yeah that you would probably if you culled out of that all of her own stuff mm-hmm. there's a lot but no i would say she does about half and half but again uh she helped graham parsons write a lot of grievous angels but she okay. didn't really write it i mean i think she okay. does her best work again as a collaborator it's writing sing- and singing yeah if you go into spotify and you look at her songs it's her with other people yeah and then if you look at like another more recent thing that we all know her for um the oh brother where art thou soundtrack she's really writing with those other ladies and it's beautiful one of my notes here is that this feels like oh brother before oh brother Brother. doesn't it i mean it feels like where the cohen brothers were like we've got to get like this is i mean right this is this is the lost old brother soundtrack or something yeah and and another thing that i want to point out is i always hated his name so I never really gave him any uh, <laughs> Ricky Skaggs. I just hate the name Skaggs. Skaggs. But that dude. Skaggs. That dude turns up anytime I feel like I do kind of like bluegrass. It's Ricky Skaggs. The guy's an amazing uh, mm-hmm. mandolin, and I think he plays violin too. But his vocals, um, when he's harmonizing with her, are just impeccable. So I got to give him major props. Well, the whole thing too. is star-studded. Johnny Cash is on it. Yeah, Willie Nelson's on it. Do- Dolly Parton's on it. Yeah, and if you're and if you're listening to all those names and going, oh, I don't want to listen to a country record. It really isn't a country record. Um, it's just more of a traditional blue. I, and when I say bluegrass, I don't mean there's going to be a bunch of like crazy picking and grinning. It's just like mm-hmm. traditional songs. One of the reasons, really that, good. But it's really a stupid comparison for me to say. Oh, but the only reason I say that it sounds like that is because Ralph Stanley and the Leuven Brothers are on it. Well, and the other cool thing is, the Oh Brother gave everybody. Because it was Cohen Brothers, we were right. all like, "Oh, I'll listen to this." Because it's, and then we were like, "Oh, I like it," you know. So it's kind of it, it's. My understanding is that this was kind of a risky move on her part because th- what I've read 
is that round about this time, all the majors in country were starting to pivot to the new country sound. But I mean like the new, more yeah. current, slick. And, and, and this was a remember, hard left turn from that for her. This was kind of our, mm-hmm. uh, I, gotta, I gotta do my own thing. I think the reason that I even, that I liked the record so much is because despite the fact that she didn't write the song, she made them distinctively hers. And they sounded um, authentic, right? It didn't sound transparent. It sounded like a, a real respect for the material as opposed to somebody who's just trying to make, make a buck from trying to sound like somebody else. Like, like the Waylon record we listened to, right? Sure. Waylon was just phoning it in, did a cover that was really ill-advised right. on the record. Right. Whereas she seems to have picked these for specific reasons and right. interpreted them in a specific way with a special set of people that she called together for the song. Right. Right. And I think that's what translates uh, as the art product. Sure. One other thing, she uh, it was produced for a long time by Brian Ahern, who played uh, 12-string guitar and arch-top uh, guitar and gut-string guitar and all of that. They got married. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and he, but they got they got divorced a few years later. But the truth is that he continued to produce her even after their divorce. How cool is that? That reminds me a lot of. Um, I'm a big Kate Bush fan, and uh-huh. she married the guy that played guitar for her on like the first four or five records, and then they divorced, mm-hmm. and he's never stopped producing and working with her because he's like, I love these kind of people that are just like, uh, yeah, she's like a like a one in a lifetime artist I'm not just going to walk away from that even though we can't be in a relationship anymore yeah how cool is it that you can sort of that your still personality bond, you can still is, bond over can, that can handle that yeah. yeah that you're strong enough to be able to show up every day and, and Robin Guthrie couldn't do it you know <laughs> oh no and neither could neither could yeah if you turn out to be a fan of Amy Lou Harris which I I'm a new one now apparently this was the beginning of them trying to do a quartet record. Her, and I think it's Linda Ronstadt and Dolly Parton, were going to do, but it took them, and they, and they didn't, like an aborted attempt at trying to do another record. Right. But, but it didn't work out, and they ended up do, actually doing it about a decade later. That's correct. They did. So I thought that was cool. She is an interesting person to read and uh, know about, you know. So, yeah, Henry, uh, again, like, I, I always try to do my then and now. Uh, back then, I'd never heard of uh, Emmylou Harris's record, uh, Sand, uh, Roses in the Snow. I was totally unaware of it. Now, I, I'm not going to recommend it, um, but I have nothing bad to say about it. Um, it was an enjoyable record to listen to. I think I'm not going to recommend it just because we had so many good records this month. I didn't want to recommend every single one of them. But I mean, if you like bluegrass, you'll you'll. Yeah, I you'll think if you are at all inclined to enjoy roots music in any in any way, uh, you could do worse than this being your entry point. It's into world's that. better than the Waylon Jennings record. So, what record are we going to now, Henry? So and now, this is another kind of country record, right? Yeah, this is San Antonio Rose uh, by w- Willie Nelson and Ray Parker. Yeah, so I I want to call this one. Uh, by Ray Price so, and Willie Nelson. So you wanted to put his name first. Yeah, because I think in doing my research with Ray Parker 
<laughs> with Ray Price. Hey, wasn't that the guy, Ray Parker Jr.? I think that's right. I think that's right. Who being a call? I think that's right. And then Willie Nelson comes in, maybe I. And let me just say this. I've never really heard. Who's afraid of no ghost? No. I've really never heard of Ray Price before. I hadn't either. Uh, but I anyway, to look it up. So yeah, I think this was a Ray Price record that Willie happens to sing on. But let's go ahead and listen to a song, and this is "Nightlife" by Ray Price and Willie Nelson. Right. Mine is just a, another scene from the world of broken dreams. Oh, the nightlife ain't no good life, but it's my life. When the evening sun goes down, you will find me to hang around. Okay, so Henry, in doing my research, right. Ray Price apparently uh, had a 1961 album called San Antonio Road oh. that he did, and Willie was a studio, guitar, studio guitarist uh, resident songwriter in Nashville at the time who had not gone out on his own, and he helped Ray Price on this record, and he played guitar on the record, and... I believe he wrote Nightlife, and Ray Price did it then, and it was a hit on, from that 1961 record. So Ray Price kind of later on in 1980, Willie wanted to pay the favor back because Ray's career was kind of flagging. Languishing. Right, and so they did this record together. It turns out uh, Willie liked doing this so much that he kind of did a series of record duet records with other artists. I kind of feel like it's his way of showing out because his voice is so good. Fucking distinctive, awesome. because this yeah. dude has a really distinctive voice too. But he's more like on paper, this it really shouldn't work because uh, Ray Price is more of a crooner, kind of smooth, yeah, right? Like a, Whereas Willie Nelson is very, dis, you know, maybe I that has you know that was good. That whenever was good. you hear that, that's Willie Nelson, right? But and it sounds effortless, right? And it doesn't sound put on. No. And then you hear this guy start on a couple of these songs, and you're like, what's Willie going to do with that? And then all of a sudden, you're just they, like... They're harmonizing. Well, and then Willie's butter. Parts. I mean, Willie's just butter. Yeah. I mean... He, yeah. Everything he adds salt to works. Did I would you, just say this. I would not want to go up against Willie if I was a singer in any no. way, shape, or form. He's going he, to beat you. Ray Price could, though. He was I, with I don't think he even... He was hanging... I don't think he was hanging. I mean, no, I, I take that back. They did great together. Yeah. I just think Willie was the king. Like, Willie was champ. I think that's why Willie liked this. He's like, oh, let me go take down all these dudes. Something about that gut string guitar that he plays you know, on everything. Right. Sounds right. Yeah, and I'm going to say this. The reason I didn't, now I can reveal, the reason I didn't recommend the Emmylou Harris record is I figured if you could only take one, if you're a pop 80s person, you could only take one country record, an episode... 
mm-hmm. this one's the better record. Uh, yeah, I think I disagree with you on that one. Okay. I think that... Uh, that I find it a lot more interesting in this one because of their two weird different... I Ray Price sounds like old country yeah. to me, and Willie sounds like New- 70s, like Chris Christopherson. Uh-huh. I hear what Austin, you're Texas the only, country. The only problem I have, it seems like every, every song sort of followed a, a similar arc. And I think that, that sort of wore on me after a while. Right. At, after about song five, I'm thinking, okay, I get it. Right. You know, well, a couple... Are you gonna, are you going to do something different? But, like, I've heard people... Did you hear the jazz? Okay, I was going to mention okay. that because, uh, again, doing my research, I didn't know... So Ray Price was known for the Ray Price shuffle. Yeah. Which was he would take country and put this... Um, actual shuffle beat to it uh-huh. and jazz it up a little bit and okay. that was his like signature jam that's what he did mm-hmm. even though he wasn't the drummer but he was that was kind of what he, he it was kind of like he was Frank Sinatra izing country music yeah and so you that's hear, why I call him a crooner you know right but really it's that shuffle beat it's almost like mm-hmm. he takes the 2-4 uh, beat which is the country beat which is you know just kind of Puts a little shuffle on it, so it's like, oh, and that's all. It's not like super complicated, but it's just adding a little shuffle to that beat, and it kind of puts it in a different realm. Um, Willie, however, which is cool because Willie can hang in that shuffle, but he also, to me, sounds like he's the one bringing it back to yeah, yeah, country, <laughs> you know, yeah. But no, I thought it was a very interesting record. I thought it was a cool mix of. of uh, styles and genres so I, um, I had no idea this record existed until we decided to do this episode so I can't say I had a then feeling on it Yeah. Uh, now I want to say wow I really liked it because this is one of those records that I approached when I saw it on the list and went oh boy I don't know if I'm going to like this at all <laughs> and then I was pleasantly surprised I really actually enjoyed it I liked it but I'm not going to give it a recommend I think it's uh, probably good for a uh, a couple of songs to understand that difference. That's all. Okay, good. So that is uh, San Antonio Rose, and that's going to bring us, Henry, to, I believe, our last record of the episode. Do you want to introduce it? Yes, this is Flesh and Blood by Roxy Music. The song that we're going to play is Same Old Same. And here it is. So I bought a new, a newer car while we were uh, preparing this, right? So I had two sets of uh, 
of sound systems to listen to this on. My first pass on this, you know, it starts out with a cover, a, the Midnight Hour song. Terrible, right? I, in my mind, a terrible thing to do. And so, unfortunately, like for me, that's the fir- I'm hanging all my emotions on whatever the fuck they thought about that song, right? What what was what were they doing and so i'm slogging through the, through parts of the record but i'm listening to these tiny sort of now tinny speakers through my honda insight right and i was sort of like meh okay i don't really i'm not getting it bought my other car with the bigger stereo and it the big roofers and tweeters and all that put it on after i get past that first that first song the record just opens up like a flower you know and in fact, it gets better when you listen to it three times or four times because you can hear the remastered guitar work that's on this thing. You can hear the tri- the the tremors in Brian Ferry's voice. The things that made Roxy Music good, you can actually hear. I feel like if you listen to it on a low-end stereo or at a low volume or something like that, that you're really not going to get what you're supposed to get out of it. A lot of the the feedback that I heard on on this record is that they sound tired or lazy. I don't. I'm not buying it. It doesn't sound that way. I see. I see some weird left hand turns. I question all the great songs on there. Um, uh, were good. People questioned the cover selection, the Midnight Hour song, and the Eight Miles High. I hated Eight Miles High the first time I heard it. Then I went and listened to it again. And I'm like, shit. That's actually very good. So I think you need to turn this record up, and I think you need to keep people from talking over it. It sounds more like a personal. Well, I don't. I'm gonna give you my personal. If my wife would shut the fuck no, up. No, no, it wasn't that at all. It wasn't that at all. But you know, there's 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 things in your life that will kind of encroach on that. That you should really take the time to put this in your ear holes. Because uh, it's and it's and you're not going to get it on the first pass, right? So I'm I'm a That's big how I feel. right, and I, I I see where you're going with that. I think we both can agree on one thing: um, the covers, uh, at least the Midnight Hour cover leading off the record, was an odd choice. Yeah. But let me say, just being a big Roxy Music fan, I I know where that came from, and I can put it in context. Oh yeah. The longer Roxy Music went, the more it became the Brian Ferry solo. Project. Are you saying this is like that? Well, here's what I'm saying. Because Avalon is, comes after this. But hold on. And, and Avalon was mostly a, a... He was fully in charge. And he was fully yeah. in charge of this one, too. But he became very adept after this. And it was known for doing these kind of 80 revamps of covers. He yeah. did a whole cover record. And, he's, and he was very good at them. So I'm not, I'm not saying he shouldn't have done it. Um, he also, if you if you see any interviews with him recently, he considers himself not a crew. I don't want to say a crooner because I don't think he, I don't think he thinks of himself as a great trained voice like Frank Sinatra. However, he thinks of himself as a unique voice, mm-hmm. and he almost likes using his voice on other people's material as much as he does his own stuff. Now, that. with that said, this to me is a hangover record. If you listen, which I am totally enamored with '70s Roxy music records. It sounds like this is the record where they had, and, and really, to me, the 70s Roxy Music albums, the four of them, are party, like, party records. They're mm-hmm. like avant-garde disco records, and it sounds like when the 80s hit, 
they were trying to get clean, like they were, like it's a come down. Like man, they'd been they'd been doing so much coke for so long. They were like getting clean and trying to chill the fuck out. It starts to sound to me like they're becoming adult. Mm-hmm. They're becoming older. They're slowing down. Let's do a couple covers. I am going to disagree with you totally on Eight Miles High. I don't know what the fuck he's doing. I that really for. liked it. I I didn't like it the first time. With all that third said. Time. Same old scene and over you are two of my favorite Roxy Music songs of all time. Like the two, they're great. Also, Flesh and Blood is kind of what people think of when they think of '80s Roxy Music. Right. Which the other thing that sucks about that is ABC and all these other bands, these new romantic bands, kind of copped. Right. Roxy Music and David Bowie and like... That's the perspective bit I'm talking about. But 70s Roxy Music is, a, I'm trying to say, is a lot better. Yeah, And yeah. it's probably a lot... Don't start with this one. But... Well... Um, but I'm not going to... I don't want to call it a terrible record again. I think I have a theme going through all of our episodes. Guys, don't put a bunch of covers on these records. <laughs> right? Save that for... Amy Lou Harris can do it, but you right. can't. And save it for Beta Noir when you're out of ideas, right? <laughs> Don't do that right now. Right, but anyway, I guess what I was going to say was I thought the good stuff on this was so good, it made me question, why are you? Why did you throw 8 Miles High on there? I thought it was good. Like, but why wouldn't you throw that on but a But don't beat? do the other why one. Wouldn't you throw Just that, do the one. But why not throw that on a four uh, 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 EP, a four-song EP? I don't know. They had an extended jam they liked on it. Oh. <sighs> But I dug it. I I was liking um, Phil uh, Manzanera's guitar work. Yeah, he's great. The guy's just angular and cool. I just loved listening to him. I I hated the first song. Yeah, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna definitely say it's hit. This is the first one of the records I'm gonna say. Just skip number one. Just like Mm -hmm. don't even listen to it. Go straight to song number two. Also, I got, I gotta say something. And you may disagree with me on this. I don't know if you've looked at all of them, but except for probably the very first record, I think Roxy Music has the best record covers. I mean, it's hard, man. They're all like iconic women, right? And this one is cool. I mean, like. <laughs> but anyway, well, I mean, this this record did achieve immediate commercial success. Well, that's know? the other thing. I think I think especially I, the UK. I wanted to talk with you about that as well. Um, Commercial success, a lot of times, especially in the 90s where we came from, meant sellout mm-hmm. and usually meant a suck record. Mm-hmm. I kind of see that as Flesh and Blood is uh, inferior to the 70s records, but it probably did better than the 70s records. Well, not um, the U.S. had only... Re- Roxy Music probably never got... Well, Avalon was, was before... Yeah, they didn't have any hits until they, This one got... My notes say it went up to number 35 here, but number one in the U.K. Right. So, yeah, I'm going to... I don't... I can't recommend this one, Henry, even Do, though I think it's really, it's th- not bad. I think that anybody who likes The National needs to listen to this record because you will hear some some straight-up influences straight off this thing. Yeah, but but you're going to hear even better versions of that on the floor before this one. <laughs> but well, yeah, you're right. It's not bad. It, you're, you're right. You could you can hear that on there. That's how I felt. About and if you're if you're a big new romantics uh, '80s ABC shoot that poison arrow fan, and you thought I don't want I never heard Roxy music, go check that out. You'll be blown the fuck away. Anyway, all that shit was kind of a, this kind of is the start of all that kind of stuff. Did you, did you change your mind? Oh God, who was that? Soft? No, that wasn't Soft Cell. Human League. Brian Ferry. You can thank Brian Ferry for all those guys wearing three piece suits and. 
dressing dapper as fuck and all that good shit. So, uh, Henry, you're going to recommend this one, I'm assuming. Yeah, I'm going to recommend it to mostly for people who haven't really been properly introduced to Roxy music. Okay, and I am not going to recommend this one. I'm going to recommend you go back and check out earlier Roxy music. I will, so, and we'll talk about it. Okay, great. So let's uh, let's finish up our episode with, uh, Henry, what is your favorite record of the episode? This is going to be Peter Gabriel 3, Melt. This is, uh, after listening to all of these, uh, as a virtue of a, being a human being, you deserve to listen to this record and know it. Yeah, and I don't know if this is the first time, but we're going to agree. I, I think Melt is by far the most interesting and probably the best record um, from this episode. And as an 80s aficionado, you owe it to yourself if you don't know Melt to go back and check it out. And that's it. May, second half We finally half of did May. it. Second half of May, we've got May totally 1980. And so, a uh, little preview for uh, the next episode, we're going to listen to some... Uh, some radically different records, right? The Game by Queen, Underwater Moonlight by the Soft Boys. Good, I man, I've been waiting to get to some Robin Hitchcock. <laughs> I am. Um, I'm really interested in listening to Xanadu. Uh, uh, wonder what that's going to... I think I'm going to love it. Right. Because I love ELO. Right, who I, I think too. is involved with that. that I, I agree. I'm kind of looking forward to that. Somebody well. else I haven't heard of, ITT. It's a re- uh, the record's called ITT. The artist is Fila Kuti and Fila Kuti. Sorry, Fila Kuti. Yes. Oh, you're gonna you're gonna love. You're gonna have to research Fila Kuti. Okay. And Africa '70 and Emotional Rescue by the Rolling, by the Stones. Rolling Stones. So yep. really looking forward to that. And it's June is just a one episode gig. So. So we're back to just a, a single episode month. That's right. And if you like our show and you like the records we're choosing, if you'd uh, please rate and review us on iTunes. You can also listen to us on Spotify and Stitcher uh, and share it with your friends. Uh, we will eventually have a Patreon once things start rolling. We've got a lot of, we've got catalog now. We've got like, you know, about almost six months worth of records that we uh, talk about. But um if you find us, we're on Twitter at 80s Exposed, or uh, you can email us at 80s Music Exposed at gmail.com. Uh, we have a sister pod that's been well. We, how long have we been doing the other one, Chris? Um, probably about nine months, ten months. Right. It's but, called, uh, but we were doing it weekly, so we have a lot of episodes of that. I think we're 32 episodes or something. That's right. Uh, and uh, we're probably a little less professional, maybe a little more current. We talk about some modern music. We love to put you know, the newer stuff on our other pods. So sometimes you'll hear us talk about, you know, newer music in context with this, but um, we listen to some other stuff over there. Anything else, Chris? No, that's it. I think uh, we covered it. Hey, Chris, guess what? What's up? I made you a mixtape.